1: The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears.
0: I'm Steve Allman.
1: I'm Cheryl Strade.
0: This is Dear Sugars.
2: Oh, dear song, won't you please share some little sweetness?
1: Hi, Steve.
0: Hello, Cheryl. I say, actually, weirdly upbeat greeting. I'm always very happy to see you, but the subject today, not so upbeat. like not it's so a, happy. It's a heavy one, yeah. We're, we're going to talk today uh, about, we call this episode, In the Shadow of a Damaged Parent. And it is uh, really, we get s- such a multitude of letters that really, when you boil it down, has to do with how do you live in the shadow of a parent who was in one way or another damaged, and to what extent do we as kids, we're all kids of some set of parents, inherit some of that damage? Is it inflicted upon us consciously and unconsciously, and can we, and how do we find our way out of that shadow?
1: Mm -hmm. And there are so many nuances to that shadow. I know for myself, having a damaged father, a question I was always asking myself, even though he wasn't in my life after about the age of... Six was, will I become like him. Yep. Am I, in some ways, um, vulnerable to uh, some of the patterns uh, that he that he carried out in his life that I think he repeated from his father, and um, you know I, the answer to that is no, but it took me some years to understand that. But I think that gets a lot more complicated when you grow up, uh, spend your entire childhood in the company of somebody who really uh, does have some some difficulties and damages of their own.
0: Yeah, I, I have to say that the letters we're going to talk about um, are, are more extreme, but I want to extend our thinking about this to somebody like me. I had parents who were very loving, and they tried, I think, very hard to be good parents, and yet they were humans, not gods. They were human beings, and for example— my mother, who passed away about a year and a half ago for most of my life, um, she was a sacred figure for me. And it's, um, it, it really took me into my 30s and 40s to recognize that she was a very anxious person and, and very down on herself in ways that were masked to me Mm -hmm. when I was young. And she was a depressed mom with three small kids at home also trying to do her residency and feeling completely crushed by her circumstance and by the shadow of her own parents. Mm -hmm. And I've realized really at the end of her life that that anxiety and self-loathing is something that I carry inside of myself. So it, it needn't, we needn't define it as Damaged, capital D. Right. Everybody in their own way is trying to dismantle the unrealistic, idealized version of the parent and recognize that the parent was a human who had flaws, and chances are if they were present in your life, you inherited some of them.
1: Absolutely. So let me read this first letter. Dear Sugars, growing up, my mother and I were great friends. My dad was never really around. He regularly came home at 3 or 4 in the morning because he had to keep up, quote, business relations. My mom didn't question it except when something fishy would turn up, like handwritten love letters in his car. In any case, they worked it out every time, and I didn't think much of it. One day, my aunt borrowed my dad's car and found some diapers hidden in the trunk. My mom convinced me to hack into my father's email. I felt terrible, but what I found was devastating— Dozens of emails from young women. My dad had been unfaithful to my mother for a long time. He denied everything, and to this day he claims my mom is just psycho. At first, my mom was enraged and determined to leave him, but ultimately she decided to stay. She began blaming my sister and me for my dad's infidelity. She said if we were better behaved and he'd had a better home life, he would have never cheated on us. She also began to look different. She lost a lot of weight and she even got some cosmetic work done. She told my sister and me that we were not attractive enough to keep a man, and she urged us to get work done as well. I'm no longer close with my mother. We barely speak. I feel horrible about myself for not being close with my parents. I've had only one serious relationship in my life. It was with a friend from my hometown, and we were together for five wonderful years. I don't believe that anyone could love me more than he did, but I was so afraid of him cheating on me that I eventually pushed him away. Three years later, I met my current boyfriend. We've been together for almost a year, and things have been great. I feel loved, and I enjoy the time we spend together. However, early in our relationship, my boyfriend told me that he had drinks with an ex-girlfriend with whom he remains friends. That night, she told him she was in love with him still, and would always be, even though she's in a long-term relationship herself. He's a very straightforward man, and he told me he had no idea she was feeling this way, and he thought they were strictly friends. He said he knew he should keep his distance. That was seven months ago, but I know that he continues to communicate with her, and once he hid it from me. He remains friends with several ex-girlfriends, which I do not like but tolerate. But his friendship with this particular ex worries me. She sends him birthday gifts, comments on his social media posts, even ones that I'm in, and continues to be present in his life, as if I never happened. He assures me that I'm the only woman in his life, which I believe, but I don't like that he continues to entertain her while acting as if he doesn't in front of me. Am I doomed to sabotage this relationship like I did my last one? Are my childhood experiences of watching my mom deteriorate and become someone I no longer recognize, affecting my adult relationships? Do I confront my boyfriend or am I being paranoid because of what I observed growing up? Signed, never cheated on. Mm.
0: Never cheated on. I I don't think you are being uh, paranoid. I think probably any person would be concerned that an ex of your boyfriend of a year admits that she's in love with him and will never stop being in love with him and they're still in contact and it sounds like he hasn't been straightforward with you about the extent of that contact. That's concerning, okay? Um, But let's set that aside for now. Your preoccupation with the possibility that you're not going to be able to, and I'm going to put this in quotes here, Cheryl, keep a man is not just because of your dad's negligence. It, It is that, I think, that obviously contributes... But that triggered something even more insidious, I think, which is that your mother located that, that problem as a problem of female inadequacy rather than your father's negligence and cruelty and you know, his, his infidelity or maybe his weakness or his need to go outside the marriage and, and his dishonesty. And she was so scarred, not just by the betrayal, but by her complicity in it, that she essentially put that on you.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's really right on, Steve, and and I would say that there are you know two things going on here. One is that deeper question that you have never cheated on, of how to heal this wound, and it is a wound from your family of origin. You know, it's it's not okay to be enlisted in basically busting your dad and his infidelity um uh, sometimes kids get caught in that in the crossfire they accidentally discover that information but you were actually Enlisted. A, a player in yeah. this and 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 that's unfortunate but i also think you know there's the relationship problem which is your boyfriend was alone with his ex and she told him that she's still in love with him and probably always will be and you know i'm all for lovers becoming friends and Uh, people being very comfortable with those kind of shifting roles. I Mm -hmm. do think that, uh, as a rule, you can trust uh, your partners uh, with their exes if they legitimately are friends. But this woman is not saying she's his friend. She's saying, I'm still in love with him. And I, for one, think that it's not out of bounds to say, well, you know, I don't really want you hanging out with her. And, you know, I think that the fact that uh, your boyfriend shared this information with you is like one step like he's in some ways you know saying to you okay this thing happened so he's being honest with you but i think the next step is okay given this information what's the best decision what's the move that's going to uh, be healthiest for us as a couple the
0: the only thing that i would say Cheryl, uh, is that i think the situation never cheated on that that you've been put in here is good for your boyfriend for telling you Uh, but you need to tell him a little bit more about your family history and how you think that is feeding your preoccupations. He says after she announces, the ex announces her love for him, he said he knew he should keep his distance. Okay, so he got it, right? And that was seven months ago, but I know that he continues to communicate with her and he once hid it from me. There's a whole drama that's unfolded there. It's not as big a drama as the diapers in the car and the hacking into the email, but it's like a little mini replay of a situation where there's suspicion and covert trying to discover. And all of that stuff, which is really at the root of what makes infidelity uh, so insidious, which is deceit, needs to stop. You can't be spying on him, and, and he can't be being dishonest with you. Uh, about his contact with this ex-girlfriend or or other ex-girlfriends, I believe you would be wise to have a discussion with him in a moment of relative harmony and say, listen, I know this is a real trigger for me. I know this is where it comes from. I can't get away from that, but I don't want it to drive us apart. And the only way that is going to happen is not by you necessarily changing your behavior, but by us agreeing that we have to be honest with one another and be even a little more vigilant than a normal couple because I know if that doesn't happen, I'll start hacking into your email and trying to figure out if you're going behind my back and reliving the trauma that I saw play out with my mom and my dad. Mm -hmm. And that is the the source of, of, of what's going to push you apart.
1: Yeah, and I think never cheated on anything that is a reenactment of either your your mother or your father in your in your adult relationships is going to be a trigger, uh, you know. Playing the cop in a relationship is reminiscent of you know your aunt finding those diapers and your mom saying hack into this email. So you know I think that in addition to doing some of this stuff, Steve and I have suggested that deeper work that you do about um, disentangling, you know, what was yours in your childhood and what was theirs. You got sewn into their romantic mm-hmm. web. And I think that a lot of that, you know, deep work that you need to do, um, it's it's something that I'm gonna suggest that you, you know, that, that you maybe consult a professional. Yep. I mean you might really benefit from that kind of deep work you can do with a therapist, somebody who's gonna be able to talk you through mm-hmm. some of that ugliness of what you endured.
0: Because also Embedded in this letter, never cheated on, is the fact that you're no longer in touch with your parents, and you feel guilty about it. Cheryl and I consider and say, "Why well, feel guilty? It sounds like the, the, you needed to do that to make a, a happy life, but it's much more complicated." Yeah. We're we're deeply loyal to parents, even and especially when they're damaged, because we're trying to protect them, as you tried to do with your mom. I want to help her out, right? And so, you know, that's something that you would want to discuss as well. You could even ask the question. Is it significant that I'm involved with a man who has lots of relationships with ex-girlfriends? In other words, am I drawn to this guy in part because he stirs this ancient stuff up?
1: Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. Last Seen, a new podcast from WBUR in the Boston Globe, investigates the largest unsolved art heist in history.
2: So about the time that he begins putting the duct tape on, he says,
0: this is a robbery.
1: The theft of half a billion dollars worth of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston.
0: When the FBI says, we solved it, we know who did it, it's like, no, you don't, because you don't have the paintings
1: subscribe and listen to Last Scene now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts sponsored by Samuel Adams and ADT Smart Home We're going to be having a special guest today we've had on the show before that is your very own father yes. Steve Almond I mean, look. Um, Dr. Rick <laughs> Almond who has offered us great counsel uh, in the past, uh, yeah. with situations a lot like this.
0: Yeah, I just want to put out the proviso. I know the episode's called In the Shadow of a Damaged Parent. There is no... Irony intended or no implication, the fact that we're going to have Rick Almond on, uh, as I, I don't th- I think I don't need to tell you this Cheryl, but I am a big fan of my father's. I don't consider him damaged. And would
1: you like to do the honors? Would you want to tell our listening audience a little more about your dad?
0: Uh, my dad, Rick, I call him Ricky, Rick Almond, uh, Richard Almond, is a psychoanalyst, and he's the author of two books. One is called The Healing Community, and that's a fascinating book about the way that communities and communal life can be healing and therapeutic. You know, we lived on a commune for a summer, back in the old, in the summer of love. And then he wrote a really fascinating book with my mom about a decade ago called The Therapeutic Narrative that is all about great works of literature, Silas Marner and Pride and Prejudice, all these wonderful novels, and how they are actually therapeutic narratives. And I love that book that he wrote with my mom, so everybody should go buy a copy.
1: And he's been practicing psychiatry for 40 years. Yeah. Which is, wow.
0: he hasn't gotten it right yet, but he's practicing like hell. (laughs) Let's give him a call. Hello? Hey, Pop. Hi. Hi. It's Steve. (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> It's your fa- it's your favorite son And his sidekick, Cheryl well, it's, Stray It's not that, I, it's not that <laughs> Hi, I'm his Cheryl. favorite Hi. son
0: It's that I'm in his top three sons He's one of your That's the way we sons. think of it So I'm one of your top three sons How you doing? Okay Good uh, I'm here with Cheryl And we have just discussed Never Cheated On We want to talk about The second letter as well But before we do that What are your thoughts When you encounter a patient Who is living in the shadow Of a damaged parent?
2: Uh, well I love the way you call me with these questions that would require three or four hours of uh, careful discussion.
0: <laughs> we'll just do it in like five, <laughs> for a five minutes. For five-second
2: answer. Well, yeah, let me make a couple of comments. Um, one is on what happens when people have traumatic experiences. And trauma can be <clears throat> not simply death, but a chronic situation or in this case a more complex one where it seems like things are okay and then suddenly uh it's revealed that things are not what i thought and when that happens it's uh, a number of things happen as a consequence one is that in a sense people can't process think about what's going on in their lives mm-hmm. and they often fall back on more simple forms of thinking in which let's say there's good and bad people or there's uh safe and unsafe parts of the world so paranoia let's say and i think somebody in the, in this letter she may have used that term yep. um in addition something goes on in terms of their sense of self and this is something that um Freud wrote about in a paper called uh, Mourning and Melancholia, in which he talks about what happens when there's loss, and loss can be through death, but it also can be through losing the idealization of a a, a parent, for example, um, that very often what happens then is if the loss can't be processed well uh, through a normal mourning, that you then have what he called pathological mourning. And that may lead to a pathological identification, which is usually in the form of taking in whole the other person, the person who's been lost. So this woman writes, terrified of being cheated on like my mom. Objectively, she has no more reason to be cheated on than the average person. But she, A, may have selected somebody, more like her father, and B doesn't know how to deal with him around it. So all of those can be the result of this more pathological process of uh, taking in the parent whole.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there cases in in your practice, Pop, that you can think of where you you know had to help a patient who was not um, you know, who wasn't able to kind of see their life clearly because of the damage of a parent?
2: Well, um, when you ask it that way, I would say that's almost all my patients, <laughs> past and <laughs> yeah. present, yeah. Yeah. Um, to varying degrees.
0: Let me let me read this second letter, um, Pop, because I think it's a more extreme example of, of some of the kind of problems with identification yeah. that you're talking about. So I'll just give it a read here. Dear Sugars... Two and a half months ago, my father was found dead in his home. The cause, a self-inflicted bullet wound to the head. He died surrounded by bottles of empty alcohol and food containers. He died in a stranger's rental home. His own house had been burned down four months prior. My father and I were so similar. I was a classic daddy's girl. He was the person I was closest to until his drinking problem sparked the divorce with my mother and endangered my life several times. I separated myself from him. When I heard about the fire, I hadn't talked to him for four years. I saw the news on the Internet and immediately tried to contact him. I missed him and regretted every moment I'd held anger in my heart against him. I called his caseworker... But he had told her he had no emergency contact or children. He shot himself before he ever talked to me again. Each day is a reminder of how I've failed him. Each day I retroactively try to get to know the man that raised me better, try to learn his brilliance. Each day I fall short. My father's death did not put a hole in my life. I've been poking small holes in my life for a long time, and I feel like there's nothing left of me that can leak out anymore. If anything, his death has acted as a spotlight to show me how flimsy my life is. I don't have a job right now, and I can't afford to go to school. I'm 24, sabotaged every chance for stability, and I'm clinging to my wonderful boyfriend in an unhealthy manner. I see myself making the same mistakes as my father, and I'm afraid of ending up like him with a bullet in my own brain. I feel paralyzed with fear, and I relive my memories of the past to fill the hours until it's time to sleep again. My question is how do I prevent this from ending me? How do I tether myself signed lost
2: mm. yeah wow
0: um what are your thoughts about this
2: well um She feels guilty, and you know we know this from many people who who lose people, that one of the first reactions is, you know, I could have done more, I did something wrong, and she's got a very bad case of this because she wasn't in contact, and as she points out, couldn't have been that that he denied the contact. Mm -hmm. But I think I've come to think of that guilt, what seems like guilt, as a way of holding on, Mm -hmm. because if you say I'm guilty, in some part of your mind, you're saying, "Well, if I could go back and do it correctly right. if i wasn't didn't make a mistake, uh, then I could have the person back in a kind of magical way right.
1: i I'm really struck by that that same I, that each day is a reminder of how i've failed him, mm-hmm. which I feel like okay you're wrong about that, and if you can first get that wrap your mind around that lost, actually you you responded in a reasonable Way to a father who wasn't able to be there for you, he right. had a drinking problem right. it, it it he enda- you right he endangered my life several, several times. times yeah um yeah right. and, and you know this you regret that you held anger in your heart towards him, but that is that was actually a very reasonable response when somebody as important as our father and powerful lets yeah. us down in such a significant way. Of course, you're going to feel betrayed. Of course, you're going to feel angry. And and in so many ways, as you hear on the show over and over again, Steve and I even recommend to people. We'll say if somebody is being that way in your life, sometimes you have to make the hard choice not to have a relationship with them. So you know, I think that that this idea that you failed him is absolutely false. And and that to me, like that if if she can first wrap her mind around letting go of that idea, or re- telling that story in a new way, um, which isn't about her failure, but rather her strength, a lot is going to ha- shift um, from that vantage point. What do you think of that, Dr. Rick?
2: Well, I think alongside that, what you're saying is, is you know, supportive of what, what happened to her and uh, validating. I think along with that, I try not to challenge the the irrational thoughts that patients have that are very important to them, because I think they're only going to be given up uh, when there's other alternatives. She's got a way of holding on to someone she loved and still loves, right. and that you somehow have to validate the love and her capacity to love, and yet understand that it's, it's now fueling something different. Yeah something self-destructive.
0: It's, the, the line that I picked up on is fascinating, was when you write Lost, each day I retroactively try to get to know the man that raised me better, try to learn his brilliance, and I thought, is there a way in which she's trying to return to a version of her father who resided in her very young childhood when he was, you know, the sun and the moon to her? Right. If I can just think back... To the man who he used to be, the the dad who was strong, and I had a positive ad- identification with him, then I won't be, you know, without a job, feeling depressed, etc. It's magical thinking, but it's it's actually rooted in a very real part of her experience.
2: Right. Um, in in some way, she is is not able to um, get past childhood. You might say she's gone back and living it out. Uh, including taking on the onus of what happened by sabotaging herself. Well,
1: that's it. I mean, so she asked this question that's impossible for us to answer, really. How do I prevent this from ending me? And I'm curious, you know, she is 24, and that's the other thing I'm curious about. So, you know, I remember feeling very much in my early 20s, um, that being an era of great reckoning, uh, where I'm looking back, and I, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Obviously, a big thing happened to me in my early 20s. My mom died, so yeah. it makes sense that I was coming to grips with her in her life. But um, I think that, you know, I looked around, and a lot of my peers were doing that, too. That's a time when childhood has ended and adulthood has begun, and you've got to look back. And really, I think for a lot of people, see parents as humans for the first time, separate from the needs one had as a child. Right. And, you know, we oftentimes during that era um, are kind of, we blame our parents for a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, you know, we, we don't quite right. forgive them yet, the, their flaws. And I'm curious about, uh, you know, what you might um, have to say about, you know, a, a 24-year-old doing this versus a 34-year-old. And, and what, what you know, she might do to help um prevent this from mending her.
0: Or, or just tether her.
1: Yeah. yeah, to tether her. I think
0: the, the point you're making about the
2: early 20s and, and what you're pointing out there is that there's certain universal developmental issues that people face in their 20s. And it has a lot to do with really being faced with reality for the first time. You know, once you go off to college or leave home for a job or whatever, and you, you have to deal with a lot of A lot of the stuff you're carrying away from your past and so forth um, is the reason I think people have unhappy love affairs in their 20s fairly (laughs) normally. Uh, They're they're dealing with a kind of idealized wishes and projecting them on their early serious relationships and then being disappointed. So what I think we're saying is that it is through healthier relationships – that people often change, some combination of that with a capacity just to suffer through difficult stuff. Um, And I think the next step is, can she do something about it? And whether that do something would be to change some of the negative things in her life or go into therapy, or she may find someone who, you know, can kind of confront her and tell her, you know, you're screwing yourself up. And you don't need to.
0: Yeah,
1: Right. And that's, you know, this is what I'm trying to drive at when I mentioned uh, the fact of her age. But what I've learned, what I know just, um, you know, anecdotally through my own life, is that, that a lot of stuff happens developmentally when we're in our 20s. And it has to do with these very deep primal bonds we have with our parents. And those things are shifting around. How do we live in the world Uh, Without our parents, how do we come to terms with everything that our parents gave us or didn't give us or instilled in us or robbed us of? You know, What did they do right? What did they they do wrong? And how do we live with it? How do we continue that bond with them or sever that bond or make sense of their own choices? And so these things are all happening even when it's going well. Mm -hmm. Um, But when something big happens, like a parent dies, and in this case, when a parent dies by suicide after a period of, you know, addiction and and, and self destruction. These are these are all these magnify and exacerbate um, that very developmentally appropriate era of questioning. Yeah. So what I want to say to you, Lost, how do you tether yourself? You 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 received the lifeline that I'm just gonna to throw to you right now over the podcast waves mm-hmm. to just say it's 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 probably gonna be okay. And it's painful to have had a father such as the sort you have. It's painful that you're going to have to live your life without him, but you can do it. And part of doing it is really going right down in there and looking at what was wrong and what was beautiful and what's making you suffer and what you don't want to remember and what you have to remember. Um, You know, I do think that, that it's okay to go through a hard time, reach the bottom and climb back up. And I, I do believe we have the capacity to do that. Um, suffering doesn't always mean something's gone wrong. It just means you're living a life.
0: One thing that I would recommend, as we always do, or we try to do on the shows, it turns out there's a lot of literature that is about living in the shadow. I'd say about 65% of literature is, in some way or another, directly about living in the shadow of a damaged parent. The the book I thought of immediately, it's not a perfect fit, but it's such a beautiful book, that I think it will really mean a lot to you if you find it, if you haven't read it, is Nick Flynn's Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. Mm -hmm. It's an absolutely devastatingly beautiful account of his childhood and his relationship with a very self-destructive dad. Uh, I also thought about the novel The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, which is about a woman who's in that developmental stage we've been talking about of trying to find her way in the world and really struggling with it, and, and she needs to be tethered. Um, And The Glass Castle uh, also by Jeanette Walls is another account of an idealized parent that Jeanette has, you know, that she's really, really uh, just sees the beauty of both her parents, her mother in particular, and their charisma and all the wonderful things that they were. And also tries to take into account that that same person was profoundly destructive to her.
1: I mean, this is how, this is why literature is a consolation. This is why friendships are a consolation. This is why sometimes taking a long walk alone in the woods is a consolation. That in the sorrow of our disconnect, we forget how connected we still are right. to so much and so many people. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, you know, we try to make that here on this podcast. That's why I do this podcast. Because I, I mean, I think that the most important work I've ever done as a writer is to make people feel less alone.
2: Right. Well, that's what your your book was about. Also, yeah. <laughs> several of your books. All
1: of, yeah, all of right. everything I've written is about that. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, you know, nobody can nobody can take away anyone else's suffering, but we can offer company. Yeah. And right. consolation. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pop, thanks so much for for taking time to talk with us. It's always such a pleasure to hear your voice, even okay. when we're discuss- even and especially when we're discussing the heavy stuff.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's always fun to talk with
0: both of you.
1: All right, take care. Bye-bye.
0: Great to talk with you, Pop.
1: Bye. Good to talk with you.
0: Bye. When I talk to my dad, I just feel very lucky. That I have that dad, and, you uh, are lucky. I know it, and I'm. I you know, it, it, nobody's perfect. No parents are perfect, but you know, and in, in, you realize when you when we read our letters and in the inboxes, and you know, just I, I am made aware continually that there are people moving through the world who have had incredibly tough. I mean, really, at the bottom of it, lost and never cheated on, and, and lost especially. That's just rotten luck, that sense of helplessness. I just admire loss that you're 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 trying to bear it.
1: yeah, you both have uh, a lot of a lot of work to do to heal that wound that has been left by your fathers, but we know you can do it and we wish you luck we sure do. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Michelle Siegel. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We record the show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Josh Millman. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss. And other music is by the Portland band called Wonderly.
0: Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please, we beg of you, send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com.